you have a Bible this morning, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 will be in verses 37 through 47 together this morning. And if you do have a bulletin there, I've given you some notes that you can uh, use to help you keep along and stay awake. And it's right there in the middle of your bulletin. And the title for this morning's sermon is, God is not a universal father. God is not a universal father. In our study again in John chapter 8, we see Jesus interacting with the Jews. And here he makes it abundantly clear that God is not everyone's father. John 8, starting in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. Your father you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies." But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand what Jesus meant when he said what he said here to these Jews a little over two centuries ago. And I pray that today we would understand that you are not necessarily everyone's father, which would cause us to look deep within our hearts this morning to see who it is that we truly pledge allegiance to. Open our eyes this morning. Help us to hear what you want us to hear so that we can live out your truth in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Christian universalism is a liberal doctrine held onto by professing Christians who have strayed from the truths of the Bible. And the name itself is an oxymoron. You can't be a Christian and a universalist at the same time. So there really is no such thing as Christian universalism. Nevertheless, there are many Christian quote-unquote universalists who try to focus on some type of reconciliation for all people. And this is the view that all human beings will be ultimately uh, restored into a right relationship with God, the God of the Bible, whether they know that or not, and whether they repent or not. And a, a Christian universalist does not believe in the authority of Scripture. They do not believe in God's judgment, and they certainly don't believe in hell. And arguably, the most famous Christian universalist of our day would have been Rob Bell, who famously was a mega church pastor who wrote a book back in 2011 entitled Love Wins, subtitle, A Book About Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. And here's the gist of what 
Rob Bell said in that book. He said, every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. He said, there will be no eternal conscious torment. He said, God says no to injustice in the age to come, but does not pour out his wrath. He says that he certainly does not punish people for all eternity. In that book, he simply says, in the end, love wins. Now, what Rob Bell means by what he says is that God's love is so powerful that it trumps his wrath. And because God is a loving God, he would never, ever pour out any wrath on anybody ever because that would mean he would send them to hell and no loving God would ever send anybody to hell. Therefore, all people who have ever lived on the earth will go to heaven. Now, that sort of thinking may be popular and fashionable in the world of faith, but it goes directly against the Bible and directly against the words of Christ. In fact, it was James Montgomery Boyce who said, no one can read the gospel of John and be a universalist. Think about that for a moment. Here in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus said in John 8, 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. So we're already seeing at the outset of this text, you can't have Father God in heaven and also have a father of the devil of this world and somehow claim universalism that somehow all sides are going to heaven. That's just not how it works. All this to say that God is the Father, not in a universal way for all people, but in a spiritual sense only for those who know Christ. It's the universalists that say that God is the Father of all, even salvifically in the afterlife. And it is true that God is the creator of all, and it is true that He's the Lord of all. And it is true in James 1.17 that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. And it is true in Acts 17.26, and He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And it is true in Romans 11.36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. But that's a far cry from universalism. There is no, in the Bible, all roads lead to heaven. There is no all individuals go to heaven message in the Bible. And there is no we are all God's spiritual children and therefore all go to heaven. That's as crazy as saying that every NFL team will win the Super Bowl this year. That's as crazy as saying every team that is going to be playing this year in the World Cup will win the championship. That's as crazy as saying all 64 teams in the NCAA tournament are going to win the basketball championship. It's crazy. You have winners and you have losers, right? You have those who are going to heaven and you have those who are going to hell. You have those who believe and those who don't. You have citizens of heaven and citizens of hell. And only those who are adopted into the family of God by grace can call God Father. And only those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb can call out to God as Father. Only those who have been born again can pray our Father who aren't in heaven. Only those whom God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts can cry out, Abba, Father. No, God is not a universal 
father to all. He is a specific father to his own, to those whom he has redeemed, to those whom he has brought out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. As John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The Bible teaches that either God is your father or Satan is your father. You either belong to God or you belong to the devil. You are either born again as a child of God or you are an enemy of God belonging to the father of this world. So let me ask you this morning, who is your father? This morning, I want us to listen closely to the teaching of Jesus as we look at three headings from these 10 verses that will help us find out who our father really is. Number one, one out of three major headings, the ignorance of the self-righteous man. And your first blank, if you are taking notes, says this, self-righteousness kills while grace regenerates. Look at verses 37 and 38. This is kind of where we left off last week where Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. The Jews that Jesus is dealing with here are self-righteous. They think they can get into heaven by their own righteousness instead of by grace. And a big part of their self-righteousness had to do with their ethnicity. They believe that because they are Abraham's physical descendants, then they get an automatic pass to heaven. And they believe that because they are God's chosen people, that they will all individually be saved. In fact, the second century Christian apologist Justin Martyr writes about these skewed Jews and their perspective when he writes this, quote, they beguile themselves and you, supposing that the everlasting kingdom will assuredly be given to those who are of the dispersion of Abraham after the flesh, although they be sinners and faithless and disobedient towards God. And so this statement is saying that even if the Jews are living in the flesh, and even if they are unrepentant sinners, and even if they are faithless, and even though they are disobedient to God, they will still make it to heaven just because they're a Jew. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, right? You don't get to heaven because of who your mom or your dad or your grandparents are. There's also an idea circulating along some philosophers where one Jewish source states that Jews will not go to hell because Abraham is guarding the entrance to hell, preventing any Jew from going down into the flames. So that's not a major view, but there's some Jewish um, philosophers who state that Abraham's on guard, not at the gates of heaven, but at the gates of hell. And if you're a Gentile trying to get in, then go ahead. But if you're a Jew, he keeps you out of hell and sends you back up to heaven. Well, this just simply is not true. We read last week a couple of these cross-references from Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are of his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, it has nothing to do with your ethnicity or your line of being a Jew. It has everything to do with being spirit-regenerated by the grace of God through Christ to be born again. 
We read the same thing in John, excuse me, Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Getting a little warm-up. For the sermon yesterday, I had the awesome responsibility of teaching my boys about circumcision. And when I taught them about what really happened with circumcision in the Bible, and even today with little boys, they simply went, ah! <laughs> But we're reminded that while circumcision was a sign of the covenant for Hebrew people, that in the Bible it's simply a sign that was to point to a greater sign, which would be a circumcised heart a spiritual cutting away of the flesh, as it were, and rather looking to Christ as one who would cleanse us and free us from our bondage to sin. These passages are telling us that it's not about family heritage, and it's not about ethnicity, and it's not about anything external. Salvation is all about the heart. It's all about grace and faith in Christ and in His perfect life and in His death and His resurrection, and so only grace can regenerate you. Only grace can transform you. Only grace can save you. It's a matter of the Spirit of God working inwardly in your heart. That's Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. That's how one is saved, is by receiving that gift, by repenting and believing in Christ and in Him alone. And so what we're seeing is that Jesus is saying that you must be of saving faith to be of Abraham and you are not. And because you are not living a life of faith, you are trying to kill me, and so my words find no place in you. And you are not abiding in my word, and I am not abiding in you. And this is all coming, not just from me on my own, but from the Father. Jesus is not alone in his proposition. He's saying that all that the Father wants him to say, he's saying. He's standing in solidarity with God the Father. And while the Jews are listening to him, they're accusing him of different things, and they're also claiming that they're part of that same father. And yet Jesus says, no, no, you're of a different father that we'll hear about in a moment. And so we see that self-righteousness kills while grace regenerates, but we also see, your next blank says, self-righteousness boasts while faith works. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did. And so while the Jews continue their argument about ethnicity, they continue to claim that Abraham is indeed their father. And Jesus says, no way. There's no way that's possible. If Abraham was your father, then you would be doing the same thing Abraham did. If you are a child of Abraham, then you ought to have his spiritual DNA in your life and not to flesh itself out in humble obedience like we see in Abraham. In fact, let me show you five significant ways in which Abraham obeyed. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, just so we can get a little bit of a reminder here of how faithful and obedient Abraham was, that if these Jews looked anything like him, then they should be following in his example. But here's number one, Abraham followed God to the land that God showed him. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So just remember, Abraham came out of Haran, or the Ur of Chaldeans, and he transitioned a pretty good distance in the ancient world across the Fertile Crescent, as it were, and the idea here of him moving was it was his, his family and his servants and his cattle and extended family that would have been migrating with him this great journey. And then it says, after, you know, you just think about that, where is he going? God just says, to the land I will show you, verse 1. And then verse 4, so Abraham went. We don't know that he had a whole lot of direction. We just know he's going and he's following God wherever God leads him. And so Abraham went, and as the Lord had told him, Lot went with Abraham, and he was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Just a good reminder, it's not like you stop following God when you get older. Not that 75 is that old. But the idea is that you keep following throughout your life. And we see Abraham's obedience to follow God wherever he would take him. If you read a little bit later in the text, it says that when he got there, there was a famine in the land. could have been easy for him to think, well, thanks, God. I came to the land you showed me, and now there's a famine. I've got to go find food. And yet he followed God wherever God wanted him to go. Number two, Abraham made sacrifices as instructed by the Lord. Look at Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram that is three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land. I give this land. And so what we're seeing here is that Abram is is obedient and setting out these sacrifices. This is a ratification of the Abrahamic covenant when God says, take these animals, cut them in half, the blood that would be between the halves of the animal, both parties usually would walk through in order to make this covenant. Yet in this picture, only God, represented by the smoking fire pot and the, and the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, is represented going through the halves of the animals, re- representing a unilateral covenant, covenant, uh, one that God is making with Israel. Regardless of what Abraham does, God's going to be faithful to Abraham and his, to his descendants. And yet we still see there's an obedience here where Abraham does make these sacrifices as instructed by the Lord. Look at number three. Abraham was circumcised as a sign of the covenant, Genesis chapter 17, 1 through 2, and when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. He goes on to talk about circumcision of himself and all the males in his household. Skip down to verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and those born in his house, all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So again, we're seeing faithfulness, obedience, 75. He moves from one place to another, 99. He's willing to be physically circumcised, a very difficult act of pain, no doubt, right? And yet he's very willing to obey. And not only would he obey, but he would have every single male under his care obey. And this was all, again, a sign of the covenant 
that would point to the ultimate sign of the new covenant, a circumcision of the heart, which is what God calls us to today. And then we see number four, Abraham showed hospitality and humility before the Lord, Genesis 18, and the Lord appeared to him at the Oaks of Mamre. We believe this to be a theophany, an appearance of God there with Abram on that day. Abraham, as he sat by the doors of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants. A little, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves upon the tree, under the tree. And while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servants. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, Three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had prepared, that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Well, again, we just see this extreme display of humility. He bowed before God. He feeds these three men. He serves them faithfully. He gets his family involved again in the same process with Sarah and with his servant. And so we just see, again, this extreme humility that Abraham had before the Lord. And not only that, number five, maybe the most recognized one, would be Abraham obeyed God by being willing to sacrifice Isaac, Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 3. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Just pause there for a second. You think how long it took Abraham finally to get what was going to be a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And he's waited. and He's already kind of done the wrong thing by going into Hagar and having Ishmael. That didn't work out. And now they're waiting again for God to finally fulfill his promise, finally to get Isaac. And now here we are testing Abraham, saying, take your son and be willing to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. It doesn't say be willing. It just says, go and do it. And what do we read in the very next verse? So Abraham rose early in the morning. How many of you like to obey in that way? God tells you to do something really hard, confessing your sin, sacrificing an idol in your life, and you're like, all right, Lord, right away, early the next morning. I can't wait to do that. Most of the time we're whining, complaining, rationalizing, and maybe never doing it. And yet here we see Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood of the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. Skip down to verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Now, we're seeing, again, in Abraham, incredible obedience, and yet not one of these acts of obedience would ever save Abraham from his sin. You're not saved by obeying God. You're saved by repenting of your sin and by faith, believing in the substitute God provides, Jehovah Jireh, my provider in this Genesis 22 text, of looking to Christ. Don't forget Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's about faith and belief. Abraham believed, and it was counted unto him as righteousness, again quoted in Romans chapter 4. We're seeing here that genuine saving faith results in genuine obedience, that good works are the evidence of true salvation. These Jews were not even doing the work Abraham did, therefore they don't belong to Abraham, but they have a different father. They were really of Abraham children of the promise through Isaac, then they would be obeying Abraham, listening to the words of God through the Son of God and obeying Him fully and completely, but they're not. And so what we see here is self-righteousness kills while grace regenerates, self-righteousness boasts while faith works, and then third, self-righteousness tears down while truth builds up. Look at verses 40 and 41. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Jesus, again, is making it abundantly clear that they are seeking to kill him. And all he's trying to do is tell them the truth. Jesus is in no way harming these Jews. He has not abused them. He has not bullied them. He has simply exposed their sin with the truth and called them to repentance. In fact, Jesus was brokenhearted about their response. He was brokenhearted about the rejection of Jerusalem, as he says even in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you are not willing. He's torn up inside emotionally as a man that his own people would continue to reject him. In fact, he wept over Jerusalem. So yes, the truth is what he came to bring, but he wasn't emotionally happy about how they're responding, and yet nevertheless, he continues to speak the truth. And when you speak the truth, it demolishes pride, and it topples strongholds. But the point is to rebuild in its place a solid foundation. The goal of exposing sin is always to replace it with fortitude. And Jesus is speaking the truth to these Jews so that they would see the error of their ways, that they would repent and believe in Him as the Son of God. And it's our job as Christians to follow Christ's example. We must also speak the truth in love. We must know that the world that we live in needs tough love just like this. We can't fall into the thinking of a Rob Bell who just focuses on how God is love and so we just preach love without preaching God's wrath or confronting sin. Our world is built on fluff, emotions and feelings and personas and our lives need to be built on a person and His name is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. 
that was rejected by the builders. Christ himself is that cornerstone. And so we want to speak the truth in love and to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And all of this really points back to the fact that Jesus tells the truth, Jesus is the truth, and the truth never lies. You never have to be afraid of the truth. You never have to run from the truth. You are to look to the truth of the gospel to expose your sin and to bring you to saving faith and to give you incredible hope and incredible joy of the fact that your sins can be forgiven and that you can stand with Christ and heir to salvation. So don't be self-righteous today. Don't hold on to external things. Don't boast in the flesh. Don't tear down what Jesus wants to do in your life. Release yourself to Him. Trust Him to take that which is broken, knowing that He will fix it. Trust Him to take that which is fragile, to wrap it in His comfort and His love. Trust Jesus today to take that sin which is ugly and to make you beautiful by His transforming grace. The truth stings sometimes, but oh, how we need to hear it. Second heading I want to bring to your attention this morning is the incomprehension of the natural man. The incomprehension of the natural man. In other words, the Jews still aren't getting it. They don't really comprehend. And what they don't comprehend is this truth. Your next blank, God is not every Jew's father. In the second part again of verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So they're continuing to claim that they belong to God. And yet remember the first part of verse 41, Jesus said, you are doing the works your father did. And he's not talking about God. And he didn't mean Abraham. He meant Satan. And that becomes clear in verse 44. The Jews don't yet comprehend what Jesus is saying at this point. They definitely feel like they do belong to Abraham, as they've already said. And here they're claiming that they have one father, and that is God. It is very likely that these Jews were also taking a swipe at Jesus by stating we are not born out of sexual immorality. They seem to be inferring here that Jesus was. In other words, they didn't believe in the virgin birth. They believed that Mary was with a man before she married Joseph and that Jesus had an illegitimate birth. And if that is true, which is what they're claiming here, then they don't really understand Isaiah 7:14, which had been a prophecy that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. They should have considered the fact that if Mary's with child and she's not yet been with Joseph, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14. And yet they quickly run to the assumption that that couldn't have happened. Therefore, Mary had to be with another man. Therefore, this is an illegitimate birth. And so they're throwing, they're throwing shade upon Jesus. This means that the Jews are also denying what Gabriel said to Mary when she asked him how would she know that his prophecy was true since she was a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And so part of the problem is that the Jews are saying that Jesus had an illegitimate birth instead of accepting him as the child who will be called the Holy One, the Son of God. This is what we call an ad hominem tactic and argument. 
They're saying they're getting pressed by Jesus, they're getting pressed by Jesus, so they attack his character. They change the subject and try to throw back dirt in his face, thinking somehow that will alleviate them of the pressure he's putting on them. The Jews don't want to deal with their real problem, and their real problem is they don't belong to Abraham, and they don't belong to God. Even though they say they have one father, it's understanding how that can be confusing for a Jew because Exodus 4, says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31, 9 says, For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim my firstborn. It is true that God was a father to all Israel, but in a national sense. But spiritually speaking, he was only a spiritual father to those who had genuine saving faith. Again, we read about this in Paul's argument in Galatia, Galatians 3, 7 and following, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Again, it is all those who are of faith that are blessed, not every individual Jew and certainly not every individual Gentile. It is only those who are of faith who are the true sons of Abraham, the man of faith. J.C. Ryle writes on this passage, we find the Jews priding themselves on their natural descent from Abraham as if that must cover all their deficiencies. Abraham is our father. We find them going even further than this, claiming to be God's special favorites in God's own family. We have one father, even God. They forgot that fleshly relationship to Abraham was useless. Useless unless they shared Abraham's grace. They forgot that God's choice of their father to be head of a favored nation was never meant to carry salvation to the children unless... They walked in their father's footsteps. All this, in their blind self-conceit, they refused to see. We are Jews. We are God's children. We are the true church. We are in the covenant. We must be all right. That was their whole argument. Again, they're just external religious people holding on to all of the things you can see with your eyes and not understanding what you need to understand with your heart. God is not every Jew's spiritual father. Next point says God is the father of those who love Jesus. He is the father of those who love Jesus. Jesus said to them, verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. This verse makes it plain. If God were your father, Jesus is saying, then you would love me. I'm from the Father. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't have the Father and deny me. I and the Father are one. If you love me, you love the Father. If you listen to the Father, you listen to me. If you obey the Father, you obey what I'm telling you. It is now abundantly clear that these Jews don't even know the Father. 
because they don't love Jesus. And if they love Jesus, they would obey Jesus. And instead of obeying him, they want to kill him. And if God were really their father, they would be disciples of Christ. Instead, they want to have Jesus killed. They don't recognize the fact that Jesus is from God. They do not want to believe that the Father sent Jesus and He is not here of His own accord acting independently of the Father. They don't want to believe any of that. And so what else do we learn here? Your next blank says, God is the Father of those who hear and obey. He's not every Jew's Father. He's the Father of those who love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, we're seeing now that you hear and obey. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, when he asks the question, why do you not understand, that word understand is the word gnosko. It also can be translated as knowing or to know. It was used earlier by Jesus when he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. In other words, you will know or you will understand. Again, that word is more than just an awareness and a superficial understanding. It implies realization. And it means to grasp the significance of something and to have true comprehension of what is being said so that you can respond to what's being said in the most appropriate way. And so why can't they understand this? Jesus says it's because they can't bear to hear his word. And part of the problem is, They don't want to hear his word. Jesus is implying here, if you wanted to hear, you could hear. If you wanted to listen, you could listen, but you don't want to. Your will is depraved. Their will is full of pride. Their will is to get rid of Jesus instead of to give Jesus their allegiance. This is what Jeremiah the prophet talks about in Jeremiah 6.10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. And so the idea here is they can't hear. They don't want to hear. Because what's said in the Bible is the general idea is to hear is to obey. So in the Hebrew language, in the Shema that we talk about in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's not a word in the Hebrew language that clearly means to obey. And so the, the writer, Moses, says, Hear, hear, O Israel, because it's understood to hear is to obey. And in the same way, in the Greek construct of this word, to hear Jesus is the word akuo, and it also has this implication, according to Bedag, that to hear Jesus is to heed Jesus. To hear him is to listen to him. It's what God the Father says when he overshadowed the people on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and Christ was there with Moses and Elijah, and all of a sudden this voice came out of the cloud, and God said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now when God said that, he's not just saying, passively listen to the words of Jesus. It's understood, listen to him and do whatever he says. And that's what God's called us to. When we're listening to Christ, when we're hearing him, we want to listen to Jesus, which means we obey Jesus. We hear Jesus, and then we put his words into practice. And if you're here this morning, and you don't want to hear the words of Jesus and obey them, then something is wrong with you. If you're here, and you know Christ, and you love Christ, and when you hear his word, it speaks to you. And you identify with what's being said. 
and their true nature, having already been regenerated, aligns up with the words of truth and with the words of Scripture. And Christians have a love for their Savior. I don't mean perfectly. Yes, we still disobey. There's times when we don't want it. That that happens from time to time in any, in any believer because we're not perfect, right? But the idea is overwhelmingly you hear and you're like, ah, I want that. I want to live like that. I want to be that man. I want to love like he loved. I want to repent of my sin. I want to hear Jesus and I want to follow him. And I want to sing about it. I love to sing about how he died for me. And Christians love to put into practice the words of Christ because it brings us great joy and delight. And if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Free to hear and free to obey. Free to serve our Lord who gave us His all. What this means is that husbands who are walking with Christ want to love their wives like Christ loved the church. They want to serve her and show her honor as the fellow heir of the grace of life, even when you're tired, even when you've had a long day at work and you get that message, can you please stop Pick up some milk on your way home. You're like, ah, yes. Another opportunity to show love to my wife. You get a second text after you left the grocery store. Did you remember to get the yogurt? Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Turn around (laughs) and go back, right? If you really love Christ, wives, that means for you, you want to submit to your husband. Honey, can we get this? No, sweetie, it's not in the budget. No problem. Love you, dear. You're a wise financial guru. I submit to you. Children, this means for you, if you love Christ and mom and dad have you clean your room or do your homework, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Can I do it right now, mommy? (laughs) We need a change in our thinking, just realizing that loving is obeying. And what Jesus is saying is the reason you're not obeying me is because you're not hearing me. You're not hearing me. You don't want to heed me. You don't want to obey me. You want to keep doing what you're doing. The natural man can't comprehend it yet because their eyes have not been opened by grace to what Christ is teaching. And this leads us all to the third major heading here, number three, the insanity of the follower of Satan. The only solution to this, or I shouldn't say solution, the only other option if you don't want to go and do Christ's way with love and obedience is that you're insane because you become a follower of Satan. That's insane. Who would follow Satan? Your next blank says, the devil is the father of those who do his desire. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If it wasn't clear up to this point, Jesus makes it shockingly clear in this verse. You are of your father, the devil. You are not of Abraham. You are not of God. Your father is the devil, and your will is to do his desires. And what you want is what the devil wants. And you desire what the devil desires. And you want to kill me, and so does the devil. And the devil was a murderer from the very beginning. This reference is to the fall when Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden brought about their spiritual death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Not only was that happening, that very first 
sin of falling from the glory of God, death entered the world, but think about what was the very first sin outside of the garden. Murder when Cain killed Abel. Ever since the fall, Satan has been on a hunt to devour more. He brought spiritual death in the garden. He brought death to Abel through the hands of Cain, and now he roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The fact that Satan is a killer is also clearly expressed by Jesus in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so not only is Satan a murderer, but he's also a liar. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar, that is his character, and he is the father of lies. And the first lie Satan ever told was to Eve in the garden when the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. But she did. And because of her sin and Adam's sin, death has now entered into the world and you and I are tempted in that same way. 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Stand on guard that you don't fall into the same deception that Adam and Eve fell into. Your thoughts and my thoughts can be led astray by the same tempter, by the same enemy, by the same liar. Have you ever told a lie? Are you lying right now? Are you living a lie with your life? If so, that originated with the father of lies who were told in Revelation 21.8 that liars go to hell. Satan is the father of those who do his will. His will is to murder and to lie. If we are following Satan's actions, then we will end up where Satan is, and that is in hell. It's insane to think that anything good can ever come from telling a lie. William Hendrickson, well-known commentator, says in this passage on John, the devil then is the very wellspring of lies, the creator of falsehoods. When he lies, he is original. When he does not lie, he quotes or even plagiarizes. But even then, he gives the borrowed words a false setting in order to create an illusion. He ever strives to lie and deceive, and this he does in order to murder. You say, well, Adam, I'm not a murderer. Certainly you can't claim not to be a liar, right? And we remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you've been angry at your brother, you've already committed murder. We certainly know we've all lied. And so not only is it those who do the Satan's will, but the next blank says this, the devil is the father of those who don't believe in Jesus. It could be as simple as that. You're, Satan is still your father if you don't believe in Jesus. Verses 45 and 46, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus is reminding these Jews that he is telling them the truth, and it is precisely because Jesus is telling them the truth that they don't believe him. And if you tell people what they want to hear, they will listen to you all day long. Tell them they're beautiful. Tell them it's okay to do whatever they want to do and to feel whatever they want to feel. Tell them that they're right in their thinking. Tell them that they are right in all they're doing. Tell them that they are justified in their cause and they will be yours forever. But as soon as you tell them the truth, as soon as you say to them, the Bible says you are to pursue holiness, not happiness, as the chief end 
of your life. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a counseling office with a married couple who's struggling in their marriage and they want to end it with divorce. And though they have no biblical grounds whatsoever, oftentimes I'll ask, well, why, why do you want out of the marriage? You don't have any biblical grounds. And one of the two parties will inevitably say, because I want to be happy. What about being holy? God's called you to forgive and to be a man and a, and a woman of your word that you committed till death do us part. It's not about pursuing happiness, ultimately, though I believe happiness follows holiness. When you do what God says in his strength and in his power, I believe he'll give you the joy that you so look for in the things that you're doing. And what happens is people like what we say until we tell them it's about holiness, not about happiness. People might like what you say until you say the Bible calls sex outside of marriage a sin. As soon as you say that in the public square, even in the church today, people are like, oh, don't be so judgmental. As soon as you say you should actually forgive them and be reconciled in a right relationship with that person as a brother and sister in Christ, people are like, well, I could never see it like that. I mean, you don't understand. We, we're not like that. We're all to be one in Christ. So they don't want to listen to him because they want to live their lie. And when Jesus brings the truth and begins to speak the truth in their lives, they don't like it. And in a sense, it's as if they're convicting him of sin because they're telling him that he's not true in what he's saying. And if he says, if I'm telling the truth, why do you not believe me? Why do they not believe him? Because they don't want to believe in him. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We need to be listening to Christ's truth and have our hearts and our minds transformed by it. I'd rather listen to the truth, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, than to be hit over the head with a shovel. I'd rather listen to the truth, which is like a surgeon's scalpel, than to be beaten down by somebody with brass knuckles. I'd rather listen to the words of Christ that though they sting at times, than to try to cover a festering wound with a dirty bandage. What I'm saying is, yeah, it hurts. The truth hurts. And when we're convicted, it's difficult. And when we confess and repent, that can be painful. But oh, how beautiful it is to go from darkness to light, to go from being a slave to your sin to being a slave to Christ. Jesus is calling us all, really, through even this statement in 45 to 46, that we would come to him. And then we have this last verse here, verse 47, the devil is the father of those who are not of God. He's the father of those who are not of God. Jesus is saying, here in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. If you were of God, you would hear and you would be cut to the heart and you would repent and believe. And the reason that you do not hear the words of Christ is because you are not of God. If you were of God, you would hear and obey. If you are not of God, you reject and rebel. If you are of God, you love to listen and to follow. If you are not of God, you hate the word and you disobey with your life. Listen to what Jesus says a couple of chapters later in John 10, 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe 
the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Now, think about it. If you are one of God's sheep, then you hear Christ's voice, and you follow Him, and you've been given eternal life, and no one can ever snatch you out of His hand. But the opposite of that is also true. If you are not one of God's, then you are not one of His sheep. And if you are not one of His sheep, then you don't follow Him or His Word. You have, in essence, been snatched out of His hand by the devil himself, and you will perish. The Bible is a binary book. It tells us about life and death, heaven and hell. The Bible tells us you're either hot or cold. We either love Jesus and we keep His commandments, or we do not. We are either a child of God or a child of the devil. And nature is determined by birth. And birth is determined by your paternity. If God is your father, then you share in God's nature. And if Satan is your father, then you share in his nature. And so let me ask you again, who is your father this morning? Because God is not a universal father. You are either of your father God or you are of your father the devil. If you're here this morning, you have the wrong father because you're of the wrong nature. It's not too late to change sides. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not too late to change sides and to swear your allegiance to God, the real father, to repent of all of your sin and to look to Christ and to him alone who died on a cross and who was raised from the dead who became a substitute for sinners like you and like me, that if we would repent of our sin and turn to Christ, you could switch fathers this morning. It's it's Him doing it. It's His grace doing it. It's His calling. It's His sovereign grace that drags you out of that condition of sin. But there's also that acknowledgement that you must have this morning that if you come to Christ, He will by no means cast you out. So if you find yourself in the midst of a sermon like this, thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I think I got the wrong father, Come to Jesus this morning, who said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come away from your works, and come away from your heritage, and come away from any argument that you've ever given outside of Christ, and come to Him this morning. Come to Jesus, who alone can save you from your sin. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we're wrapping up here. Number one, there in the take home section, are you doing the works Abraham did? Remember, Abraham was only saved by believing, and it was counted unto him as righteousness, but it was abundantly clear in evaluating his life in those five areas where he followed God, and he sacrificed, and he was circumcised, and he had humility, and he obeyed the Lord. Are you living a life like that? If you're going to claim God as your father, then hopefully you're following the man of faith, Abraham, and because of your faith, you're living a life of obedience. Number two, do you listen to the words of Christ and put them into action? When Christ's words come at you, the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ convicts you of sin, does that bring about a change in your life, a new direction in your heart? Third, do you appreciate the truth and invite the truth into your life? Some people don't like hard preaching. Tell me what I want to hear, Adam, not what I need to hear. And yet Christ stepped on everybody's feet, stomped on everybody's toes all the time. I've never understood why some people say they don't like that. Well, that means you don't like Christ. 
because Christ comes. Yes, there's a sweetness and a kindness to the invitation to repentance and belief, but He's also doing some stomping this morning, and I hope that we would appreciate that, the truth that we need to hear. God is not everyone's Father, only the Father of those who repent and believe. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to look again at the words of Christ here in John chapter 8. So much to think about, so much to see with great clarity as only the master teacher, Jesus himself, can, can help us see that we either belong to God the Father as his spiritual children through repentance and faith all by grace in Christ alone, by faith alone, or we belong to our father, the devil, and we're liars and murderers at heart. And we're in desperate need of your grace this morning. So whether we're five years old or 75 years old, even up to 99 years old, we want to have that heart of humble obedience that we saw in Abraham. We would never claim faith because of anyone except Christ and Him alone, that we would boast only on the cross of the Lord Jesus to whom which we've been crucified to the world and the world to us. May we cry out to Jesus this day with all of our hearts and all of our minds and our, all of our strength, God. We need Christ. May we be thinking on the fact that we are loved and forgiven if we're in Christ today. And may that catapult us into sacrifice and service for you with great joy as an awesome privilege to follow in the steps of our Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.